This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's interview. I'm speaking today with Timothy Bowman. Dr. Bowman is associate professor of history at West Texas A&M University and is the author of the new book, You Will Never Be One of Us, A Teacher, A Texas Town, and the Rural Roots of Radical Conservatism, which came out just recently in 2022 with the University of Oklahoma Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Tim. Good to have you here. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Why don't we start, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Tell us about yourself, maybe a bit about your background as a historian, and especially, what got you interested in history in the first place? Okay, so um, I love this question. Um, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, so about 300 miles to the east of here, and um, wound up in graduate school, first at the University of Texas at Arlington um, for my master's degree, and then later um, in the PhD program at SMU in the William P. Clement Center for Southwest Studies. And um, while I was at UT Arlington, I was, I now know very much um, a stereotypical master's student in that I knew I really wanted to study history and I really wanted to do history, but I didn't know what type of history I wanted to do. my mom and dad are Canadian immigrants. And so I always, you know, I grew up hearing about um, Canada and, you know, British history and the sort of Anglo-Atlantic world. And I had a professor when I was an undergraduate at uh, TCU in Fort Worth who really inspired me to try to go down that road. Her name was, uh, route, excuse me, her name was Dr. Sarah Somer. And so I thought when I entered into the master's program at UT Arlington that I'd do something with the British empire and the British world. and so. When I started um, as a student there, and I think that this is probably a a pretty typical experience for a lot of students, I had to take a methods course. And the only person who was offering it was a professor named um, Dr. Roberto Trevino, who um, wrote a really great book on um, uh, Catholicism and Mexican-Americans in Houston. And um, so, you know, as is often the case, as a professor, he wanted his students to work in fields that he was familiar with. And so you know, I was forthcoming with him. I came up to him after class, like the first or second week of class and said, I, you know, I, I really don't know what I want to do for my research paper in this class. I don't know anything about Mexican-American history or the borderlands, and I'm feeling kind of stuck. And so um, Dr. Trevino um, very wisely said, here's what you should do. 
um, go into the archives next week and talk to one of the archivists there and have them show you some things that might be of interest and see if anything sort of sticks with you. So I took his advice and did that. So I went up to the archives and the archivist there, um, I had emailed her in advance and the archivist there had some things set out um, in front of me. And one of them was a collection about um, migrant fruit pickers in the Rio Grande Valley and this strike that they had undergone in 1966 or undertaken, excuse me, in 1966. And um, I started reading about these people and reading about the odds that they faced, um, the just crippling poverty that they faced while in the employ of multi-million dollar agribusiness corporations. And um, I just got hooked into that. So I got fascinated with farm labor activism, immigration, the border, agriculture, Texas's lower Rio Grande Valley. And that one experience was what pulled me through all of my research in graduate school at the master's level and the PhD level. So produced a master's thesis, long story short, on um, uh, farm labor activism and organizing in the Rio Grande Valley in the 60s, and then a larger dissertation that became my first book about um, uh, internal colonialism and um, racial um, um, oppression in the lower Rio Grande Valley. So that's essentially me as a historian or the first, um, you know, 10 years or so of my career <laughs> boiled down to a couple of minutes. I love that exercise or that advice that your professor gave you saying, just go to the archives, talk to the archivist and and see what jumps out to you. See what's interesting. That's something to file away for, for the future to do with my students sometime. Just, you know, find out what's interesting to you. That's that's great advice. I really like that. Yeah, you know, it, it really worked well. And I, um, you know, I grew up, it, it was shocking to me, the stuff that I saw, the way these migrant workers lived, you know, and lacked, um, um, you know, basic resources in the 60s. And of course, some of that was shocking to me because as a kid in my early 20s, I was naive, right? I mean, I, you know, I didn't know what it was like to grow up starving or in poverty or in want. And um, I wanted to know more. So the first book was essentially about explaining how that world it, at the border came into being. And um, it was a, it was a really that one moment in that class. Um, it really stuck with me. It was really important. And so, um, yeah, it's something that uh, um, I've tried to replicate, though I don't think I've had any students who've quite had that moment in the archives, although maybe I do and I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a life-changing thing for me. It really was. And what brought you to the story in this book? Why this particular topic? It sounds like, if nothing else, you've had for a very long time an abiding interest in Texas history and in the history of the Southwest. But how did you come across this particular story? So um, right around the time the first book came out, um, so the first book's titled Blood Oranges. It was published in May of 2016. So I was kind of um, rooting around, thinking about what I was going to do for the next one. And um, it was just a, a random weekday in my office. I got an email and I opened it. It was from the man the book is about. Um, so his name is Wayne Woodward. And um, he emailed me. It wasn't a long email, but he said, um, I can't remember exactly what he said because it's been a few years now, but he said, look, I've got this story, these experiences that I had in Hereford, um, but I'm not a writer. 
And I really want someone to do this book um, and to tell my story because I think that it's really important. And, you know, I, I might have read that email and just ignored it. Or I might have responded and, you know, said thanks, but no thanks. Because I, I don't know about you, Steve, but there have been a couple of times um, over the course of my career where I've gotten an email from someone who said, hey, I've got this great story. You should write it up. And it, you know, turned out to be nonsense. Or I can remember an email I got <laughs> from a, a guy claiming to be a filmmaker who wanted me to write a script on uh, the Battle of the Alamo, which isn't something that I know anything <laughs> about whatsoever. Um yeah, and I might have I might have um, wrongly assumed that Wayne was another one of these people, right, whose story wasn't as interesting or wasn't as um, important as he thought. But there was a line in his email where he said, um, and I remember this very clearly. Um, I contacted Vicky Ruiz, the historian, and she was interested in doing it, but she's deep in another book project and she doesn't have time. Now, Vicki Ruiz um, is a well-known Chicana historian. She wrote um, a great book called Cannery Women, Cannery Lives that I read in graduate school that anybody who studies, you know, migrant labor and the border and 20th century California encounters. So when I, when I saw him say that, I thought, okay, this guy's got to be at least, you know, partially serious that he really does have a good story to tell because if Vicky Ruiz was willing to take him seriously, who the heck am I to, to not do it? So that intrigued me. So um, I responded to Wayne and I said, I'm you know interested in hearing more of what you experienced. He talked a little bit about the court case that I um, um, spend a significant portion of the book on. Um, and I said, so let's meet. So we had coffee at a coffee shop near my house in Amarillo and he told me this whole story that's laid out into the book, and it sounded super compelling to me. Um, of course, though, as a historian, I had, you know, the one question that the whole thing hinged on was whether or not he had documentation. You know, he's got a great story, but it's not as if I could, you know, write up something um, just based upon a conversation with him. And it turned out that he did. This whole court case that... Um, he had gone through and these experiences that he'd had in Hereford ISD, he had saved everything, administrator evaluations, letters from students, newspaper clippings, depositions, court documents. It was all in several boxes in his attic. And so he invited me over um, to his house and I went over to his house to look at what he had and I still wasn't sure what I could do with it. I sort of thought, you know, I mean, maybe this might make for um, an interesting sort of journalistic piece about, you know, what a, a person went through here in the Texas Panhandle regionally. But as I was sifting through the material, it just, it felt like a book. And um, so I decided to give it a shot. And that's how it happened. So this is a rare case of a historian who publishes his or her first book um, doesn't really know what they're going to do on the second one. And the second book almost literally falls into your lap, you know, and I know how lucky I was in that regard to have this guy who's got this story and a private archive just hand it over to me and um, give me free range to do it. But um, that's what happened. 
I think the lesson here for all of us uh, historians who get a lot of emails is to at least glance at every email that you get because you never know if your next book project is going to be waiting in your inbox for you. I tell you what, you never know. Um, <laughs> they didn't prepare me for this in graduate school. You know, they never said um, a book project could be, you know, essentially, you know, something that someone just emails you and says, hey, I have this idea. You should do this. Um, I know this is rare, but in this case, that's how it worked. Well, let's get into the story that you tell here in this book, and let's get some of the basics down and, and kind of set the scene. Who was Wayne Woodward, and why was he fired from his job in 1975? Okay, so um, Wayne Woodward was a Texan who was born in 1945, who um, moved with his, I think it was 45, I have to look in the book, um, mid-40s, um, who um, moved to Amarillo here in the Texas Panhandle, which is actually where I live today, in the early 1950s and grew up in the area. So he had a pretty, you know, normal upbringing for, uh, you know, an Anglo um, baby boomer, right? He went to um, segregated schools when he was younger, um, you know, a sort of a, you know, a pretty typical kind of middle class life, went to a high school um, in Amarillo called Tascosa High School, and then um, wound up, in fact, going to college where I teach. It was called West Texas State University at the time, um, but then uh, later on became West Texas A&M in the late 1980s. So Wayne graduated from WT with his degree in 1968, and got his first job teaching history at a little school in Death Valley, California. He, um, um, I think, you know, he grew up in the area and I see this with a lot of my students and also um, with my own stepdaughter today. I think a lot of people who grow up in the panhandle, they really, you know, they want to leave. I mean, which I think is unfortunate because this is a wonderful place to live. Um, but they want to sort of experience life you know, in a bigger city or in an area where, you know, there's a little bit more hustle bustle, um, you know, you know, whereas things tend to be a little, a little quieter um, um, and more laid back here. Well, anyway, he left and went and taught in, um, at a school in Death Valley for a year and he hated it out there and decided he wanted to come back. So um, he went back on the job market and one of his friends was teaching history at a school called La Plata Junior High School in Hereford, Texas. Now, Hereford is a community that's, um, I'm in uh, the Canyon Amarillo area, so it's sort of southwest of here near the um, Texas-New Mexico state line. It's in a county called Deaf Smith County. And he got a job there. Um, they didn't have any history positions, though, so he got a job teaching um, seventh and ninth grade English instead. So. Wayne taught there for a little while and um, was a bit of a misfit, you know. He um, wasn't really a hippie, but um, was very much still a sort of a product of the 60s, you know, was um, uh, someone who believed in equality, believed in racial equality, um, um, wore, you know, what conservatives in those days would say he had long hair, it really just sort of hang down below his ears. But to them, that was more of a kind of a hippie look. So he rolled into Hereford in August of 1969 to start his job. And um, I say this to people sometimes when I speak on the book, imagine a, a young guy in his early 20s rolling into Hereford, Texas, which is a deeply conservative um, ranching and agricultural community 
with hair hanging below his ears and a California license plate in 1969 during the summer of love. So, you know, here's a person who's very much marked, I think, uh, visibly as a member of the 60s generation, even though he didn't necessarily self-identify that way. So a few years go by and, you know, he has the occasional um, just sort of smallish issue. Um, teachers and admi ad administrators, one in particular, um, an assistant vice principal who tells him he needs to get a haircut and he needs to start going to church and all this kind of stuff. And he, you know, he needs to do more things to fit in with the community. And so, you know, a few little sort of scrapes here and there with people, but they were all pretty good natured. Um, Wayne's a very charismatic guy. He's really funny, easy to get along with. And I could imagine him, you know, getting into trouble with some of these administrators and sort of being able to, you know, kind of chit chat his way out of it and then everything's fine. So, but definitely didn't fit in with this conservative, um, you know, um, sort of isolated town in the Texas panhandle. So anyway, um, long story short, when he is six years into his job teaching, he um, decides in January of 1975 that he is going to co-found a local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. Now, the reason he does this is Wayne, uh, he's an idealistic young guy. You know, I mean, 30 is still pretty young, right? Um, and, you know, he's still, um, you know, he's a believer that he can get out there and change society for the better. And he actually thought when he did this, that this is something that would be applauded at the local level. He thought, well, you know, I mean, the people here in town, I mean, what are, you know, what are they going to say about me as a teacher starting an organization to protect people's civil liberties? He was, in his own words, he was naive to what most people in rural America thought of the ACLU, which was that it was a radical um, um, you know, good for not, nothing organization that was controlled by communists and leftists and all that kind of stuff. So he started the, um, the, the chapter of the ACLU in Hereford, and that was where the drama really picked up. Um, I laid this out in the book. Um, he has some trouble with his principal um, at the school who keeps trying to get him to, to quit the ACLU, and he says that he believes he has a right to be in the, the organization. Um, the administration sort of puts him on probationary status under some kind of unclear charges that he's violated school policy. And then eventually in um, June of 1975, he finds himself fired and without a job. And so that's where, that's where the book, where his story really gets interesting. It's how he fights back and um, the response that the local community sort of gives to him when he does fight back. I'm curious about the, the, the kind of geographic and social context here and what the community is like that Woodward finds himself uh, stepping into. Can you tell us a bit about Hereford, Texas in the mid-1970s and in what ways it was caught up in sort of larger national political and social and cultural trends and then in what ways it was also kind of a place that was set apart from those same trends? Sure, that's a great question. So, um, you know, and I'll preface my answer by saying that um, when I started writing this book in about 2016, this was around the time when the um, Trump-Clinton campaign was going on. And um, like a lot of people, I, I, yeah, I was naive myself. I didn't see Donald Trump coming 
um, in the Republican Party and the popularity that he would receive here in the Texas Panhandle. And um, I, you know, I think I said to you earlier that I love living here and that I've been treated really well. And I've um, got a lot of great friends and coworkers. And I met my wife here. Um, and when Trump was elected in 2016, um, since it surprised me so much, I really wanted to understand you know, what went into the, the sort of the conservative mindset that I clearly was um, not understanding as a, you know, either as a historian or just as a, you know, what I considered myself to be, which was an informed individual. And so the, the book project then really became to me, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't for me about trying to understand Wayne Woodward and what motivated him, even though... Um, He's a really deeply interesting individual. I wanted to understand the people that did this to him. So how could, in other words, um, members of a school board and the public and people who were employed in the town effectively trample on the constitutional rights of a naive young teacher who just wants to do good things or what he thinks are good things? And so... To, to answer your question about Hereford, um, Hereford is an isolated community, or, you know, I think long was at least an isolated community that was founded um, in the early 20th century. Um, it was named after the, um, the, the cattle breed. I had some, some students laugh at me here, I, you know, with my um, Canadian upbringing. When I, when I came here at first, I thought you would pronounce it Hereford, which is, you know, a British way of saying the word, but... Um, you know, locally it's known as Hereford here, so the Hereford cattle. Um, but it was very much um, an isolated community. And I, I trace some of this, it's early 20th century history in the book. Um, you know, so for example, uh, we get into the Great Depression, you know, and of course, um, anyone who, who studies the, uh, the United States during the Depression knows about the Dust Bowl. But um, Hereford um, agribusiness actually did comparatively well um, relative to the rest of the state during the Dust Bowl. And so um, after World War II, then there's a real push to switch over to agriculture in Hereford. And so there are some local power brokers who invest in um, farming various crops, you know, primarily um, onions, but also um, a wide variety of, of other vegetables that are grown locally. And they have a lot of success with it after World War II. Um, and they come to rely also on Mexican and Mexican-American um, migrant workers, which is, I think, an important part of Wayne's story later in the 1970s. And so I really think, you know, um, the, the tumult of the 60s was much more muted here in the Texas panhandle, um, in part, I think, because this is such a, a much more conservative area than a lot of the rest of the country. And so, um, you know, the panhandle, there's, there was long this sense, I think, um, in the 20th century of the panhandle being isolated, but also something of an exceptional place, right? So like I trace in the book that some of the earliest um, anti-New Deal figures in Texas came from the Texas panhandle. And we're really worried about what the growth of, you know, this supposed big government liberalism would mean on the, the ground level. Um, and uh, 
spoke out against those things. And um, a couple of, um, of conservative activists in the panhandle really led the charge in terms of repudiating the Texas Democratic Party early, you know, which was a process that, um, gosh, I mean, uh, you know, took decades and decades to really fulfill this, you know, this, the coalescence of this conservative Texas Republican um, identity that uh, a lot of voters in the state have today. And so, right. And so I guess Hereford, Hereford fit into that and in that it was a part of this um, cultural conservatism, this emphasis on being a part of a frontier space that was recently settled, um, that we know how to govern ourselves and know what's best for ourselves and the government shouldn't step in and tell us what to do. And I think um, because there wasn't a lot of disjuncture during the 60s in the height of the, um, uh, um, um, you know, the new left, or well, the 50s and the 60s, really, and the new left speaking out against um, um, racial inequality, for example, um, the, the backlash against those things, you know, people who seem to, to stand up for, um, you know, liberalism or equality or racial equality um, was bound to be stark. And that's really, to me, what happens with, with Wayne. I think, um, I think there were um, probably, since I tried to write a book that was sympathetic to the people who did this and wanting to understand them on their own terms, I think there were probably some good reasons, perhaps, why they were fearful of the ACLU. But some of this certainly was the standard kind of knee-jerk reactionism of the 1960s and 70s that was a fairly common thing. I don't know if that answered your question. I think it did. It does. And actually, it kind of leads into the next question that I wanted to ask. And I, I feel like we, maybe we should pause and take a step back real quick and talk a little bit about the history of conservatism as a political ideology. So I, I won't ask you. It's, I feel like it's one of those words that everyone feels like they have an understanding of what it means. But as, as sort of an expert on it, I'm hoping that maybe you can give us a definition. And I won't ask you to recite the whole history of conservatism for us. But maybe what does it look like in uh, uh, the Texas Panhandle specifically, and what is the movement's history in this place in particular? Sure, sure. Well, I appreciate that question because I, you know, I certainly don't consider myself an expert on conservatism, but um, you know, that sort of was the the lens um, through which I tried to interpret what happened with Wayne. So um, there's um, there is a longstanding belief, I think, here that the Panhandle is different, that it's a place that's set apart. So, for example. Um, um, you know, not far from where I'm sitting right now is the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, which is one of the oldest history museums in the state. And um, it was founded um, by a historical society that was started in 1921 by historians who were very much a part of the sort of the Frederick Jackson Turner School for Understanding History. So a belief that um, the frontier experience was essentially the wellspring of American democracy. And um, I think... Um, I think that that sentiment um, is something that very much lives on. You know, I mean, this is a sort of a, um, a classical trope in Western conservatism, right? Like this idea that um, we, you know, people in the West, and I think people in, in the Texas Panhandle definitely identify more with the West than they do with the South. But we in the West, um, we know how to govern our own communities. We know how to run our own affairs. and um, 
you know, people here are very, in my experience, community oriented and welcoming. But again, they also, you know, there's also this idea that people who aren't from the area shouldn't try to step in and tell locals what to do. So this idea of self-government and um, individualism, which is based on a kind of a frontier ethic or identity is something that is very, or became very popular here um, by the middle of the 20th century. And so, um, and you know, of course, some of this is based on various values, and there are anthropologists that have written on this, that the, that the last um, Anglo settlers would have brought into the region, right? It just so happened that many of them were deeply religious people, right, from the U.S. South or um, from Appalachia and who, um, you know, believed in, you know, a sort of a, a Protestant fundamentalism and, um, you know, again, to, you know, to another degree, a, a, a sort of an ethic of self-sufficiency. And so I think um, one, of the, one of the arguments that I try to make in the book is that um, conservatism or the, the history of conservatism, and there's been a lot of good stuff that's come out in the last couple of years and continues to come out. But I argue that in order to understand conservatism in the West, you really have to push it back to um, your earliest sort of elements of Euro-American settlement and how people memorialize and remember the frontier experience because it becomes a very formative thing. Um, I don't think it's um, out of line to say that an element of mid-20th century is, of course, reactionary. You know, um, the coalescence of the New Deal is something that a lot of people didn't see coming, right? And um, I think there were a lot of people who lived in rural communities in Texas who really feared a sense of government overreach or... Um, you know, there's a local community here um, um, near the Texas-New Mexico line called Dalhart on the Texas side. And there was, a, there was a famous promoter, a guy named John McCarty, um, who had this famous club called the Last Man's Club. And they were going to resist Roosevelt's resettlement administration to the last man because to them, you know, who are, the, who are the, these federal officials to come in and try to underwrite the cost of leaving an area. They felt that it was morally wrong. And I, you know, I think it's important for those of us who write about conservatism to be sympathetic to that. Um, you know, these are, these are core values that people believe in and that they're, they're meaningful. And um, I think, you know, if you go back a couple of generations in the scholarship on conservatism nationally, I mean, it's very much treated as a, you know, a sort of a 60s you know, reaction to cultural liberalism and, um, you know, what was uh, going on at the national level under JFK and LBJ. And while there is certain, certainly an element, a reactionary element, I think, um, I think conservatism as a culture that coalesces into a political movement during the middle of the 20th century is in fact much older. And in the case of the Texas Panhandle, we do ourselves a disservice if we don't push the narrative back to, um, uh, you know, people like a famous writer um, and activist J. Evans Haley, who spoke out vociferously against the Democratic Party and um, liberalism in the 50s and 60s, or um, others who were like him, who were critical of the Texas Democratic Party establishment. I mean, these are, um, 
these are individuals who I, you know, I imply in the book need to be understood on their own terms. And so the antagonists, so to speak, who did this to Wayne and reacted against the ACLU, they were not only reacting against, um, you know, this idea that outsiders were trying to come in and shake up their town, which is a bit ironic since Wayne was from here, but um, that also this perceived threat of the ACLU even though it was reactionary, is something that really needs to be placed within a specific historical context and understood. And I attempt to do that in the book. I, I do hope that readers, readers find that um, I was successful to that end, but I guess we'll see. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Before we get back to Wayne's story, I did just want to ask one other question about what you were just saying about the ACLU and its perception in a place like the Texas Panhandle in this moment. Because... On the one hand, a person could look at the ACLU, given all that you just said about conservatism and conservative values, and say, well, this is an organization that is designed to an extent to protect the civil liberties from a, say, tyrannical government or something like that, people that are having their liberties trampled upon in some way. So from one angle, this seems like something that uh, people in Hereford might be, you know, kind of down with in their town. And yet it, of course, sparks the exact opposite reaction. People react heavily against uh, uh, Woodward. Um, founding a branch of the ACLU. So what, I guess what I'm asking is why was the ACLU such a particularly strong issue, such a lightning rod in a town like Hereford in the 1970s? That's a, that's such an interesting question. And um, I heartily agree with you, you know, I mean, it, an emphasis on civil liberties is something that, you know, one would expect would appeal to someone who is maybe more, um, you know, libertarian minded in terms of, you know, what they, um, you know, what they think a government's role in an individual's life should be, which is essentially that government should step out. And I think that Wayne himself also believed that, um, at least initially, and he, you know, admits now that he was naive um, in thinking that way. So, um, the, so the reason why they reacted so strongly against it, well, I think some of it is grounded in the history of the ACLU itself, right, which is founded in... Um, progressive politics um, in the early 20th century. Um, some of it also is if you look at the history of, of Texas, the Texas Civil Liberties Union um, did have a tendency to support um, um, workers' rights cases. You know, I, the first prominent one that comes to my mind was the um, Pecan-Sheller strike in San Antonio in the late 1930s, which was headed up by a um, self-professed communist firebrand, a woman named Emma Teneyuka. And um, so there is there there was a longstanding I think association with um, or, or of the ACLU with leftist kind of causes or taking up leftist causes, right? Um, even though that's not really a fair or full assessment of what the ACLU has done historically. So Wayne. Um, Getting back to him, he was a single guy um, in his mid-20s and early 30s and, um, you know, sort of spent some time in town 
doing his own thing. And as he was doing his own thing during his off time, he became very friendly with a local Catholic priest who um, ministered to the population of what's known as the San Jose labor camp in Texas. This was where the, um, the agricultural workers lived. And Wayne's, um, Wayne's affinity for the people who lived in the migrant labor camp had really started when he was teaching in Hereford, which had um, a, a, a heavy demographic preponderance of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the town, some of whom were his students who attended the school. And um, Wayne always found, um, I feel a little odd calling him Wayne, you know, perhaps I should refer to him as Woodward since he's a historical subject who I um, am still on a first <laughs> Even though you know him. so Yeah, yeah even though I know him personally, yeah, it's a, <laughs> yeah. a, a bit odd, so I apologize if that sounds um, a little too informal. But um, Wayne always um, took a liking to these students and their families from the migrant labor camp, you know, and would talk about how respectful they were and how um, their families were clearly you know, especially those who were from Mexico, clearly just here in the United States, wanting their children to have a better future than, you know, what they had experienced as adults. And as someone who's interested in the history of migrant labor, as we started out um, discussing, I totally get that. And um, so when Wayne started the ACLU chapter, he co-founded it with this priest. It was a, a priest named Father Jose Gilligan. And I think to the minds of locals, two things were potentially going to happen. Um, one is that students' rights cases would be taken up locally. So um, um, perhaps it was a, you know, a migrant student who left school or who claimed discrimination, um, which you know, no doubt happened all the time at the local level across the Southwest, or um, a student who felt like a teacher had violated their rights in some other way. I mean, this was a big fear that a lot of conservatives had, I think, of um, liberalism going back to the 50s, you know, um, with um, students' rights protests on college campuses and students speaking out against in local parentis and, um, you know, not being able to express themselves politically. Um, that's something that I think... Um, you know, since it's a freedom that we all enjoy now on college campus, this is something that, that's easy for us to forget about. So I think that's one. I think it's the fear of students' rights cases. But also, as I say in the book, I think that locals really feared that the ACLU would bring labor activism into Hereford, which had really never happened before to any great degree. Um, the... Uh, agribusiness interests in Hereford were worth millions of dollars in the 1970s. And so if there was someone who knew um, in town this history of the ACLU and its tendency to support unionism and workers' rights cases, um, the fear that that could happen at the local level was something that I think was very real. Um, and I talked to a couple of people about this um, when I was doing the research for the book. One was um, the father of one of Wayne's students who has since passed on, a man named Joe Whitley, who was a dentist in Hereford. And he told me that he recalled um, people who were engaged in agribusiness in Hereford just saying awful things about Cesar Chavez, which of course is 
no huge surprise, right? Because he had become famous 10 years before this and um, had led multiple um, campaigns, marches, boycotts, um, and things out in California. And well, the boycott was really, the great boycott at least was really nationwide. And so some of this fear of the ACLU, I mean, I think some of it was a kind of a reactionism against liberalism arriving in the town. Um, but some of it was grounded in some worry that the the local social structure, which of course kept the the ethnic Mexican working class repressed and at the bottom was going to be overturned, and that um, people who many locals considered job creators and uh, uh, you know influential in the local economy and in local communities were going to lose everything if their workers. Um, um, were to go out on strike. And I don't pursue this in the book, but there's a bit of irony here. Now that that was never Wayne's goal and that doesn't happen. But in fact, in 1980, um, there's um, a group of Hereford um, growers and packers who are um, um, struck by the Texas Farm Workers Union who were um, had aid from uh, um, Texas Rural Legal Aid, which was a federally funded um, um, uh, legal service for um, poor people in um, rural parts of the country. So um, Wayne doesn't do it. He doesn't bring unionism and he never intended to bring unionism into the town. Um, but I think um, it does make sense that some people would fear that. And then, you know, ultimately, um, oddly, that does wind up happening five years later in 1980. So go figure, right? Well, let's get back to the main uh, the main narrative that that uh, that you tell in the book. So Woodward's contract is not renewed, and then what happens after that? How does Wayne Woodward turn his firing into a larger issue of civil rights? How does he take his case essentially all the way to to court? So um, he had a right to a hearing with the um, school board which he chose to exercise. And before this, he had hired a lawyer. Um, this is a young attorney named Robin Green, who was just a couple of years into his, um, his legal career at the time and was probably one of the very few um, civil rights attorneys in the Texas Panhandle. And so um, there was a hearing in the um, school cafeteria at La Plata, and about a hundred locals showed up. So there were a lot of people who were really concerned over this, you know, some who thought that he was a troublemaker who was trying to upend things of the town and change the community, and then others um, who were admittedly in the minority, but who were supportive of him, particularly a number of his students who, um, uh, Wayne was a marvelous teacher, and I, we can get into that a little bit later if you want, but students, um, really responded to him really well and loved his classes. Um, so at any rate, um, he has a, a hearing that this was on June 2nd, 1975, that um, was an attempt to get the school board to step in and overturn the principal's decision not to renew his contract. Um, one of the problems that he had is that teachers were on year-to-year renewable contracts, right? It's kind of like being a, you know, being an assistant professor and, you know, not having tenure yet, right? Like you can, if your contract's not re renewed, that sort of equates in a way you being let go or, or you know, being terminated or you know, however you might want to put it. Um, Wayne, um, his lawyer at this meeting on June 2nd, 1975, 
put forward the argument that Wayne's civil liberties had been violated. Um, he argued that the only reason why his contract was not renewed was because he was a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. So therefore, his speech rights outside of his um, career as a teacher had been violated and thus he was due legal recourse. The principal, a man named um, uh, Robert Hughes, had let him go and had documented, attempted to document this because he argued that Wayne had violated school policy. Um, that argument, which um, sort of came together right toward the end in the spring of 1975 over the course of a couple of months, really didn't make sense to Wayne. Um, he had tried to get this clearly explained to him and he never was able to get an explanation out of the school administrators. There were ideas that he was disloyal to the administration. Um, there's an argument that eventually comes together in the court case that he had violated school policies by passing out material that had not been approved for classroom use, which was apparently a school policy, although even proving that um, um, by the, uh, the defendants in the case, the school board proved to be a little bit difficult. So that was where things really took off in 1975 is after the school board hearing when the board essentially said, we're going to back our principal. Um, we don't think he's done anything untoward here. Wayne and his lawyer sued them in the district court here in Amarillo um, under the charge that his, um, um, his, his uh, constitutional rights had been violated. And so that's where things take off with the court case. So then what happens next is, is kind of my next question. How does the case progress? Um, what sort of attention does this case get nationally? Does it stay as sort of a, a, a local issue or is, does it get picked up in the national press? And then what are sort of the after effects of this? What happens after the trial ends? And, and sort of what are the, the kind of lingering legacies of this in Hereford and elsewhere? So um, the national press does pick up on it, although it's covered more locally, or excuse me, it's covered more directly in the local press and in the state press. Um, but the Associated Press does do a couple of stories. Um, so essentially, they wind up going to court, and um, it doesn't um, come to trial until the next year. And um, there are all sorts of depositions that are taken in the interim, and some strange things that happen. Um, um, there are a couple of students who argue that they're that they've been threatened by school administrators in Hereford into silence into not supporting Wayne one in particular who um, um, wanted to start a petition to save Wayne's job who was essentially intimidated out of it and told that he wouldn't have college recommendation letters that he would be stripped of his membership in the key club and a number of other um, important student organizations which look good on college transcripts and so Long story short, the case um, winds up going to trial in the fall of 1976. It's heard by um, a local judge named Halbert Woodward, who was no relation to Wayne, um, who was known to be a, a pretty conservative um, person in his judicial philosophies himself. But um, ultimately, the um, case boils down to a couple of factors, and that is that Wayne and his legal team, and he does wind up getting some outside, he and Robin Green, his lawyer, do wind up getting some outside help from 
um, a few other legal organizations, um, one based in Lubbock. Um, he and his legal team essentially make the charge that he was let go because of his participation in the ACLU and thus his free speech rights have been violated. Um, the defense attempts to counter that by saying, well, you know, it was explained to Mr. Woodward that he wasn't properly following school policy. Um, there's an argument that's made that he handed out ACL literature during a classroom session, which wasn't true, um, and a couple of other things. And so everything comes to a head and the judge winds up deciding in Woodward's favor. Um, some of this comes from some, um, it, thinking back to the depositions, this is hundreds of pages of things that I read, but some of the um, the school board members couldn't couldn't fully articulate what the problem, the alleged problem was with Wayne's teaching or what policies he had, he had in fact violated. Um, and then one of them, the, the principal himself who had um, essentially terminated Wayne, basically admits um, in not so many words on the stand that the real problem was his ACLU participation. So the district court judge finds in Woodward's favor and um, he's ordered a number of things, legal fees paid, um, a settlement, back pay, a number of other things. And of course, the, um, the school board appeals the decision to the, um, the I believe it's the Fifth Circuit um, Appellate Court in New Orleans. And at that point, it becomes pretty clear that they're not gonna have success, success there. So they settle out of court. Um, so although there's some sense of triumph for Wayne and his legal team, he never got to teach again. Um, while things were going on, you know, and of course these court cases and appeals drag on for a couple of years. It's not until the spring of 1977 when everything's said and done. He'd applied for, I think, uh, about 400 teaching jobs, never got anywhere. And it was in part because he had this apparent stain on his record um, that school districts just didn't want to take a chance on him, even though he was um, a talented young male teacher, which of course those are um, um, pretty difficult to find. And so the legacy then is, I think, um, for Wayne, it's certainly one of losing a career that he was deeply passionate about. And, um, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's one of those people that just belonged in the classroom, who broke through to his students, who had special relationships with them, who inspired them to be better. Um, he wound up going on and getting a degree in nursing and becoming a nurse practitioner and, um, you know, of course, had a successful career there and was able to help people in his own way and, um, you know, has since retired and is still living in the area today. Um, I think, you know, getting at, getting at the kind of the larger legacy of the case, I mean, essentially what I tried to do in this book is to treat this like a classic micro history, right? Like here's an event with a seemingly obscure individual or set of individuals um, who were his detractors and trying to interpret more broadly what it means. And so I ultimately argue in the book that what the legacy, the important historical legacy of Wayne's case is that it allows us to see that rural communities like Hereford were a lot more divided than we might realize at first glance that um, 
in other words, you had people who, you know, even if they weren't um, out and out activists, you know, or, you know, members of the new left or out marching with, um, you know, for other civil rights causes, which Wayne certainly did not do, um, they they lived in an America that um, felt it was important to press the issues of equality and standing up for people and individuals' rights being cherished and protected. And they were essentially living in a different version of America that many rural conservatives were living in, um, who believed that their towns shouldn't be changed, that um, they knew what was best for them, and that people who acted or spoke like outsiders simply didn't belong. That essentially, um, one can look at his one can look at his case and see that there were not that there was not one America in the 1970s, but there were two in rural America. And of course, there are other political historians who have written about you know the fracturing of America, or you know um, Rogers, the Age of Fracture, or um, Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer um, wrote about this in their book. Um, but Wayne's book offers us an on the ground look at what happened when those two versions of the United States combined. And ultimately, at the end of the book, I took this up to trying to argue that there were, that this is where in rural America, we start to really get the sense that um, there are um, people who are just um, essentially not speaking the same language, right? Um, and that um, this is this is essentially how a group of people who were no doubt moral and upstanding, family-oriented, good people could do something that was so out of step to a young person who um, was idealistic and otherwise motivated by good intentions. And that's ultimately what fascinated me about his case. And you were fortunate enough to actually get Wayne Woodward to uh, write the afterword to this book. So as we start to, to wrap up here, I got to ask, um, what did he think of the book? What did he think of, of how you told his story and of, of the, the larger points and arguments that you're making here? Well, I think he liked it. Um, I think he does like it. Um, I still see Wayne um, frequently. I had a, um, a nice message from his daughter, who's a teacher in the area, who's reading the book currently. Um, Wayne and I will be appearing together at a book signing event in a couple of weeks here in Canyon, Texas, where um, West Texas A&M is. And I think that he, um, I think if I could, if I can speak for him, which I, you know, I probably shouldn't do, but I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and try. Um, I think he feels, um, I think he feels a sense of comfort in knowing that his story, which he hasn't been shy about, you know, talking to people um, over the years, I think that he feels a sense of comfort in knowing that the experiences that he had as a young man in Hereford are now um, written down and um, accessible for others to try to understand. And um, I, you know, I think that he, he agrees with me that the people who did this to him, um, who fired him and who essentially ran him out of town. I mean, there's some other um, kind of nastier elements that we haven't that we haven't talked about that are included in the book. Um, that they um, they committed an act that was wrong, but 
it came from a place of doing what they truly believed was the right thing. And that's important. And until we have these conversations about, you know, what motivates individuals on a political level um, or on a social level, I guess you, you could say, until we can have these conversations in a way that's um, objective or at least as objective as possible, we're not going to gain a, um, a sort of a greater understanding in this divided nation that we live in. I mean, I, you know, I, for me, I don't think I could have written this book. 10 or 15 years ago, I think it, you know, it was something that had to be written now because of the larger context, right? I mean, I, you know, I know there's been a lot of controversy um, <laughs> among historians lately um, uh, based on some recent statements from the president of the American Historical Association that, um, you know, historians are too, um, too essentially plugged into the times around them, right? And that we need to do more to divorce ourselves from the present context. But, um, I, you know, I don't see how we can do that. And I think, um, I think that it's important for historians to write within um, a specific context and try to interpret the past in new ways that couldn't be done before. And um, yeah, I think this is a, an example of that. And so um, I believe he was pleased. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he, he's been ordering a bunch of copies of the book and sending it out to, to family <laughs> and friends. And, you know, that's I, a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is a good sign. And so, you know, I can, um, I'm 43, um, but I, you know, I can imagine that, you know, being a, an individual in your late seventies and really believing that you experienced something important, um, and knowing that your story is now accessible to others and that they can learn from it. Um, I'd like to think that that's gratifying. And I, for me as a modern historian who, um, oftentimes works with, um, subjects who were living or who were still living, um, that also, um, you know, that's also satisfying for me um, as a thinker and a historian. Toward the end of my interviews, I always like to uh, ask my guests to put themselves in the shoes of um, one of the readers of their book and think maybe five or ten years down the line what you hope someone reading this book might remember or take away from it, thinking back on it um, sometime in the future. So if there is maybe one point or one big message that you hope a reader would come away from your book understanding, what might that be? I think, you know, um, on a moral level, I, I really hope that readers of this book will um, come away from it understanding that there is more to people than what they think on a political level. You know, in this age of social media that we live in, of course, we're bombarded with, and I'm not necessarily meaning to say that this is a bad thing, but we're constantly confronted with what others think about various subjects and we have a tendency to judge others because of that to either judge them positively or to judge them negatively and um you know i hope this doesn't come across as you know both sidesing you know our, our current political problems because i certainly don't mean it um in that way but um i do hope that someone might read this book and think you know there are people out there who disagree with me they may um, they may have ideas or they may be motivated to do things that I don't like, like bringing an organization like the ACLU into um, a place where it doesn't exist or whatever it might be. But, you know, instead of reacting negatively and demonizing others, let's, you know, take a step back and understanding and, and try to understand that ultimately 
as Americans, all that we want to do is try to contribute even in our own small, sometimes minuscule ways to making this country a better place. Um, and so I, I would hope, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not naive to, enough to think that, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people are going to read my book. Right. But, um, I would, I would hope that, um, people could read this book and, um, you know, try to come away with that sense of, you know, let's, um, you know, it's important to, to slow down a little bit. And, um, you know, just because somebody doesn't agree with my views, that doesn't make them bad or, you know, a, a radical. Um, part of the reason why the term radical, I think, works because the, you know, the book subtitle, it says, you know, I, I term it radical conservatism. Part of the reason why that works um, is because, to my mind, anyone who tramples on the constitutional rights of one of their fellow citizens out of a political end is, by definition, a radical. Um, and I know um, some listeners or some readers might disagree with me on that, but um, but right, but but let's you know, let's try to listen to each other a little bit better. Um, let's try to understand um, the various perspectives that we all have, and um, you know, hopefully get to a place in this country where there can be more dialogue and um, more compromise rather than um, anger and hatred. It sounds to me like what you're calling for is for uh, hopefully your book and in a, a broader sense for people to be more willing to humanize each other more. And what, what I often tell my students, you know, just thinking about, about people in the past is to humanize someone doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, right? Like, you know, to, to think about, you know, the most detestable person who does the things that you think are the most atrocious in history to humanize them doesn't mean that you think that those things are good or moral or just or that you're glad that they're happened, but it means that you're seeking to understand why why they're doing the things that they're doing with some end goal of creating a better society in mind through that understanding. And it sounds like you're saying the exact same thing, that you want your book to be one step toward that kind of humanization process. I think that's incredibly well put, Steve. I mean, I, um, I think it's important for us, um, you know, with as divided as the country is today to, to attempt to do that. But this is also, you know, as um, a couple of historians having a conversation, this is also something that um, is really important to pass along to our students is that um, historical actors need to be understood on their own terms to the mm -hmm. degree that we can get to that level of understanding as historians. And of course, you know, we will always be motivated by the present context, right? Um, historians don't write in a vacuum. They never have. But um, yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that you just said. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I hope that um, on both levels, you know, in terms of doing history, um, the book can contribute in its own, you know, small way to that. And then also in trying to lead to, um, you know, leaving, leaving our country and leaving our, our communities better than they were before. I hope it can contribute in its own small way to try to say, trying to say, hey, let's stop and listen to one another. And I, you know, I, I haven't gotten any negative reactions to the book yet. I think, you know, some people who are perhaps, you know, maybe more conservative in their politics might, um, you know, might take a bit of offense at the title, right? And thinking that this is a book that's about slamming people who are, who are more conservatively minded. But that is not mm -hmm. at all my intent in this book. Uh, my, my intent is to try to understand people and take them seriously, but also add to the conversation about why our country is as 
divided and dysfunctional as it is today. Um, and hopefully in its own small way, the book has done that, but I guess we'll see. <laughs> um, and then for my last question, before I let you go, um, I'm always interested in getting a preview of what my guests are working on next. I know that this book has not been out very long, but I'm curious if you have any other projects in mind, maybe any other projects that you've started work on perhaps. I do. Thanks. I, I love that question too. So, you know, it's always fun to talk about what's next. Um, in fact, I, you know, Steve, if you're anything like me, you're, um, when you're working on one thing, your mind's already on the next one, right? Because that's what we, what, what we do is, um, I, I think as historians and creative people. So, um, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that, um, farm labor activism came to Hereford a couple of years after Wayne's story ended and that, um, uh, I've gotten into this research, um, really as the book was coming out, but, um, you know, gotten full blast into it since. And so, one of the things that's really interesting about that is that um, the group that came to Hereford in 1980 and led a strike among onion pickers is a group called the Texas Farm Workers Union, which was led by a man named Antonio Orendine, who um, um, sadly passed away just a couple of years ago. He was quite elderly, but um, was the original secretary treasurer of the United Farm Workers when it was founded in the 60s. Um, so knew Cesar Chavez and worked closely with him on the farm workers movement. Well, in a sort of a weird kind of twist, um, he was the individual who I wrote my master's thesis on. Um, my master's thesis, which I finished, gosh, 17 years ago, I guess now, was about this man who was um, essentially a United Farm Workers picket captain in the Rio Grande Valley and about him being... Um, pushed out of the United Farm Workers by Cesar Chavez himself. They had this rift in this dispute. So um, I did not know before I got further into the research on Hereford that that individual and his organization wound up organizing these workers that these people in my now second book were worried were going to be organized in the 1970s. And so all of this is to say that I've, um, I've now gotten deeply into um, working on a book that's essentially um, a, um, a Texas UFW book. There, were, there, was a, there have been a spate of good books on um, the farm workers and the farm workers um, movement that have come out over the last 15 to 20 years, but none of them have really gotten deeply into the Texas story, um, which is very, very different from Cal California and Arizona. And so um, what I'm working on is, um, you know, the, the, the book, You Will Never Be One of Us, is about, you know, it's got a, a protagonist, Wayne Woodward, but it's not really a biography, right? So this next book um, will, in a sort of a similar way, be utilizing the life of this man, Antonio Orendine, and what he experienced as a... Um, a strike leader along the border and then up here in the Texas Panhandle and other parts of the state and his eventual um, um, dismissal from the United Farm Workers and moving out on his own with this unrecognized um, or unaffiliated, I should say, kind of hard scrabble union, which did some amazing things. They led a march from um, South Texas to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1977 to try to gain um, recognition of farm worker organizing and um he because the farm workers movement was so synonymous with caesar chavez for so many years um Orndine was an individual who was forgotten and i um 
I knew him, um, and I, I know a few members of his family, and I, I'd like to, to use his career as an organizer to really write about farm labor activism and um, community organization in Texas in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that's the next book. Um, I um, have some familiarity with the sources already. Um, I'm working on a few um, different chapters at the same time. Um, have a bunch of archival material that I need to get to, so it'll you know it's going to take a couple of years to get it done. But uh, I'm excited about that one. And um, um, again, you know, this is um, for me as a historian, this is gratifying, and that I you know I feel as though I can write about someone who in this case is no longer living, but, um, you know, whose life still touched um, many others and hasn't been um, looked at yet, or or at least, you know, taken as seriously by historians and, um, you know, the reading public as it should. So that's what I'm, what I'm working on. That sounds like a fantastic project. Thank and you. when that book is out, we'll have to have you back on the show. Wonderful. I, you're very kind. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. Dr. Timothy Bowman is an associate professor of history at West Texas A&M University and is the author of the new book, You Will Never Be One of Us, A Teacher, a Texas Town, and the Rural Roots of Radical Conservatism, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press just earlier this year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. Steve, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for your interest in the book. 